Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the 2023 Wrap-Up on Gig. I'm your host, Mike Redman. 2023 has been nothing short of extraordinary for the Gig Podcast and myself. I've had the privilege of interviewing some of the most influential talents behind the scenes in both music and the film industries. From globetrotting guitarists and visionary film directors to session musicians and composers and Grammy Award winning engineers, I'm really grateful. At the inception of Gig with Mike Redman, my aim was to provide insight into remarkable individuals and their professions, to look at why they were successful and share that information with you. What took me by surprise was the wealth of knowledge I gained in the process. Today is part one of my 2023 wrap-up. I took some of the best excerpts from Adam Taylor, the president of APM, Associated Production Music, who talks about exclusive music licensing for libraries, Jimmy Douglas, an incredible engineer who shares his wisdom on when to enlist a studio engineer, ad music guru Mike Ladman, who talked about navigating the ad music business, film composer Mark Antonini, and finally Mark Bonilla, who shares his thinking on the significance of reading music. These people were awesome, and I thought you'd like to hear from them. But let's kick things off with Josh Dion and his thoughts on the importance of singing. I spend all this time on something without breaking for lunch for no other reason than a vision drawn Josh Dion is a multi-talented artist who just wows me with his prowess. He plays drums, bass, keys, and sings simultaneously. Jeez, talk about a one-man show, and he's a wonderful human to top it off. Uh, how important do you think it is for uh, a musician these days to be able to sing? Yeah, I think it's really important. Um, I mean, I get it if someone can't sing, you know, and just doesn't want to. Um, but I think that, you know, I mean, I, I've known the great musicians I hang around with, like, you know, they can hear all the intervals, they can hear pitch, mm-hmm. they can hear all those things. And that's just mm-hmm. part, we just keep getting better at that as, as we grow, you know? Yeah. Um, I know I have. I mean, I, I also remember when I didn't know the difference between a four chord and a five chord, you know, and where mm-hmm. I couldn't necessarily tell you mm-hmm. what these things were. And, and now my brain goes through Roman numerals as I'm hearing a song for the first time and is like making a chart. Mm-hmm. My brain, you know, for a gig, you know, and it's yeah. and it's that's another cool thing that's developed where you start to hear, you know, and man, maybe you maybe you can even train yourself because I don't have perfect pitch or anything. You know, you can know what key it's in. You can know what yeah. the change. You know, I mean, it's a beautiful gift to be able to 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 do that. Next up, Adam Taylor, steering the APM ship for many years, discuss how library music and licensing can be a robust revenue stream. With his episode ranking among the most listened to this year. Do you explain what the advantages and disadvantages are of having a company that is exclusively licensing your music? Sure. So, you know, I'm uh, as you mentioned before or hinted to, I'm uh, uh, in favor of the exclusive libraries, not in favor of the non-exclusive ones. And partially because that's APM's model, but really... <clears throat> I think that there are a number of uh, advantages and then disadvantages of the non-exclusive side. Uh, to me, it's uh, this is a piece of intellectual property that you have, and it deserves to be managed by somebody, not just thrown into a uh, you know a search engine that somebody you know gets. Uh, it's just one among many, and things are crowdsourced and and shoved up onto various systems, and. Um, 
you know, we're very, very careful. All of the tracks that we have and, and all of the libraries that were in our model uh, are curated. They're hand-selected for quality. And so assuming that your works are of good quality, that you can attract a library uh, that is exclusive, I think that's the way to go. You're going to get better attention. That's number one. Number two is there are a lot of... Um, companies, uh, networks and studios and others who won't deal with non-exclusive suppliers. And uh, they're worried about the legal ramifications, the indemnifications, the vetting of the tracks. Um, and I, there are uh, a variety of these non-exclusive companies. I won't mention any names, but I would say at least 10 of the major ones, um, that, including ones you know well, uh, where we have found our tracks up there illegally because um, people po take our stuff and they just post it up and uh, nobody and some of the i can't speak for all of these companies but they're not necessarily vetting them and so there are often copyright issues the other thing is that um people use music without permission and it's just a fact. And we find it ourselves and we approach those clients to work out a deal or if we have to, um, you know, work towards a settlement or, you know, in rare cases, a lawsuit if somebody's not cooperative. But we have a fiduciary and moral obligation to take care of the libraries we represent and the composers who have contributed the music. And it's incumbent upon us to have to go after people and, and pursue copyright infringements. If you are the only way you in the United States that you can uh, pursue a copyright infringement, sue for copyright infringement, is if you are the exclusive supplier. So by law, if you're a non-exclusive supplier, you cannot pursue that path. So if you're looking for somebody who uh, can conceivably protect you, protect your copyrights, um, identify um, uh, uses, um, and go after the payments, then uh, you have to go with an exclusive, uh, exclusive one. So I think the combination of the care that libraries take about what music they're going to bring in, the attention that they give that music, um, the legal aspects, the fact that there are a lot of clients who are or do not use music from non-exclusive uh, suppliers, um, I think it's an important uh, thing for somebody to to really consider. Um, there's a glut of music on the, in, the, in the market, obviously. And, and the idea of sending something out uh, to these different companies um, just increases the perception of the glut. Um, also, these, many of these companies change the names of the tracks. Um, and it's the only kind of intellectual property that people do this with. Why music? You, know, it, you don't take a book and publish it under five names or a movie under five names. You know? <laughs> Why do that? And then also a lot of the um, uh, the library, I'm sorry, a lot of um, technology uh, payments, the ability to pay, uh, whether it's sync recognition or performance recognition or mechanical or anything, is in today's world based on audio recognition. And so if there are multiple versions of a track out there, then the system and everybody's putting it into YouTube's content ID or into other systems or at the PROs or whatever, um, you're just going to get uh, conflicting claims and nobody's going to collect. If there are two claims in YouTube, then nobody gets the money until those things are resolved. And part of the reason that, that companies don't want to license from uh, non-exclusive suppliers is that they don't know 
you know, where it came from and what if they're two different prices and they don't know whom to go to if there's an issue. And, you know, there's a lot of issues around that. So I think in the larger scheme of things on the B2B side, you know, when you're really talking about professional users of your music, you're much, much better off going with a, um, a company that is a, uh, uh, an exclusive supplier. If you're talking about uh, you know, social media, since you want to put in your TikTok video or your YouTube video about your cat or your whatever, and you know, then then I think you may have some some options. Even though the content ID issues are still an issue, because somebody could have non-exclusive and not put it into content ID, but because it's not exclusive, somebody else could take it and then put it up in content ID, and then you've got conflicting claims and and all kinds of uh, issues surrounding it. I think if you care about your music, if it's good, then in my opinion, you should go with an exclusive one. And I'm sure people from Pond5 and other companies will argue the opposite, and they'll probably have some cogent uh, reasons why they think I'm wrong. And that's fair. Jimmy Douglas, also known as the Senator, secures a spot among the top six recording and mix engineers of our generation. With a repertoire that includes everyone from the Rolling Stones to John Legend, he's a true gentleman and he shares his insights on when to consider employing a professional engineering studio. Why should a songwriter today, and based on the fact that you said everybody can kind of do their own thing, right? Why should they invest in professional recording, uh, mixing and mastering? I think that you would want to do that to theoretically I'll relate it to like, uh, you know, I'll relate it to records that I've been on that were like massively huge, that we spent a lot of time getting a lot of detail. Mm-hmm. And when the records blew and they sold millions and millions and millions, that's when the detail did count. Mm-hmm. Maybe we didn't spend the time doing all that. We might have had like the little, ooh, a little bit of a hit here, mm-hmm. but it may not go to the next level for whatever reason. As a songwriter, I think that, I well, the question I think that I would have liked to have, I think I can answer better, okay. is like, when do you go ahead and spend the extra money? Because, I mean, you know, if you're songwriting, you're doing it every day, you're going to probably do a good two, three hundred songs a year easily. That's my opinion. And you can't get them all mastered and mixed. And right, what, right. It's point. just too much money for supposition. Because, you know, let's face it, it until it's picked, it's uh-huh. just a song. Yeah, and there are lots of them, yeah. <laughs> and and there's lots of exactly so my thing is like when do you decide to go to that next level and do that well you'll have your one or two you know you'll have your little list i always call it my your little list all songwriters i'm like you got to have your top 20 songs somewhere in your life i don't want to hear please don't come here and play me 300 songs i'm yep. sorry yep. i lose after a while i lose uh ob- objectivity i do sure and i can't hear and i'm numb to everything so it's like spare me mm-hmm. you've done the research Give me your best right. five, even. Yep. Let's work yep. from there. And so if you have your best five, your best 20, and they're not getting the results you want to get, you might want to consider having maybe somebody dust it off and just kind of revisit it and make mm-hmm. it something else a little bit for you. Yeah. And, yeah. and those songs that I'm talking about, they will probably come to you over the years after you've tried to, you've, you know, you've been trying to solicit them mm-hmm. and they're not really getting to the ears you want them to get to or nobody's really feeling it like you are that's that to me is when you might want to go in and try some other things and invest some other money um if you believe in those songs music 
Music for advertising is often overlooked by musicians. They see it as selling out, not serious, or maybe just a dead end. Before the record, ad music was my favorite music path, besides writing music for my band. I made a great financial living, loved the people I worked with, and every job was challenging because one day I was composing music for an orchestra, and the next day for a rapper. It was my pleasure to connect with one of the most prominent and influential figures in the world of advertising music, Michael Adman. I love this guy. Talk about if I was to want to be in that business, if I was one ahead in, in, in your direction, what would you say is a good way to start and maybe get my foot in the door doing it? Let me try and figure this out in a brief way. But um, A is, I would say, start doing it. You can... And so that sounds easy and simple. So what, what I mean by that is start making playlists now. Take note of what you like. So if you want to do TV and film, find shows you like. If you want to do ads, find the ads you like and start to pay attention to the music used within that. When you do that, I think you'll start to notice certain trends for ads. It's about being yourself, coming together, want that, need that. There's certain things that come up. Um, start making playlists for each of those themes film and TV, which I haven't done much of. I did one film, I think hero stories. So what are those love breakup loss? There's certain things, start cataloging great songs, make a playlist for that. Anytime you hear a song and a visual pops up in your head, this would be like a slow-mo Tarantino thing. This is the Wes Anderson. This is good for that scene. That's a playlist right there. A playlist can have one song or eventually thousands of songs, because when you're given a brief or film, you're it's you know it's like when i go into a record store it's instant amnesia i'm like oh wait what what do i want what do i have what do i need and it's sort of that like if someone says oh man this song would have been great for that you kind of don't know the brief and so a lot of the work is the prep work of having the song so a creative director director comes at you and you, you don't need one song you need 10 to 20 songs that hit a brief so start making the playlist now and then so many resumes i got before hiring my amazing i had an intern she's awesome and badass and now i've hired her is like having like how do i know you're good at music everyone says i like music but so many people didn't include that in their resumes or whatever it's just words it's like well if you want to be in music you have to show you have taste so have playlists when i was starting it was a blog that's not really a thing anymore so like we're gonna check so some people sent me to linkedin and so i think i, I want to work with a human i'm not some like finance um so i'd say start cataloging all your favorite songs and then music supervisors are largely behind the curtains. It's this blood, sweat, and tears of war stories. And we're kind of in the shadows, I think, often. So DM. It doesn't hurt to DM. Hey, I love this thing. It's like just like any cold emailing. I love the Tim Ferriss thing of like, hey, I love this thing you did. I'm X. I'd love to learn about how you do. Can I buy a coffee? That's it. Here's a playlist of music I like that I think you might like. If you're a composer, here's three songs or... There. And there's, there's a lot of books. If you want to really get into the nitty gritty of how to do the licensing, there's, I have, you know, Donald Passman's music book. I know there's like a bunch of books. So I think now it's, it is a bit easier. And if it's like young kids, who's a director, who's a, that's making a film, just start doing it or TikTok and Instagram. Like you can just start doing it yourself, go into Logic Ableton and start editing music to picture. But I think, yeah, learn it, study it, and then like start just, yeah, doing it. You don't have to wait. Perfect, man. Thank you. Film music is where many composers focus their attention these days. Not in small part because film music today is, you know, it's going to be the classical music of the future. 
Marco Antonini is a young, award-winning, extremely talented composer, and he has a cool accent. He was such a pleasure to speak with. Could you talk about how important you think it may be for a composer today to, um, you know, to have chops in the technical world? It is very important. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't uh, define myself as a sound engineer because I don't have the training to be, you know, honestly, I would never do, call myself that, but uh, I know how to record a single instrument, incorporate it in a mock-up, produce the mock-up so that it can uh, end up in the final product and sound good. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if you get to recording an orchestra, obviously, uh, I think I mentioned this to you before, that I like quoting uh, Richard Bellis, who was a very big composer and is now been for many years the, the chair of the ASCAP scoring workshop mm -hmm. in LA that I took several years ago. Actually, he now retired from that position. He used to say, would you ever let a non-professional mix your music? Mm -hmm. If the answer is no, then don't mix your music. So <laughs> if you, you know, so that probably applies to recording a symphony orchestra yes, at the yes. road. But yes, it's very important because the bar is very high and directors, mm -hmm. uh, filmmakers, producers are used to listen to demos that sound like the real thing. Mm -hmm. So the, the, their ear is way more trained than it used to be. Last but certainly not least, Mark Benilla, who spends a lot of his time as a touring guitarist, has achieved a level of success that most of us only aspire to. Mark's impact on me was so profound that I decided to do a two-part episode with him. This is his take on a question, should guitarists read music? And his answer was right on the money. Let me ask you a couple of quick ones. How important is it for a guitarist to be able to read music? To read music? Yeah. It depends on their, it depends on their livelihood. You know, if you're gonna be a studio player, it makes a lot of sense to read music. I I can read music. I'm not I'm not an avid like sight reader uh, yep. because I haven't been put into that position in my career where that's paramount. I, you know, mm -hmm. you play something, I can hear it. You know, and like what James Newton Howard would do is he would send me the music beforehand. Mm -hmm. I would read it. I would get it down. You know, and then I would I would kind of assimilate it. Mm. And then go in and, and play, you know, not now that was, you know, he was very cool at doing that. And others have done the same thing. Uh, other times I've had to go in and just read, you know, and you know, I can read chords without any problem. But notes, I, you know, I have to work and make sure that I have it. I'm not a sight reader. like can just yep. play it like that. Oh, me, but, me either. Yeah. Yeah. But but Beatles didn't sight read, you know. So many people didn't sight read. Look at their careers. They changed mm -hmm. the course of music. So. And, 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 and sight reading or, or music in itself is, is extremely approximate. Mm -hmm. And I'll, read, I'll give you a good example of that is, is I, was on, I was driving one day in the car and I had my classical radio on. And I was listening to Firebird Suite, right, mm -hmm. by Igor Stravinsky, yep. you know. And the end that goes dun 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 bum 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 dun 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 right? And, um, uh, but they were playing it so fast. That it was mm -hmm. like, oh my God, they're just they're 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 not they're just gutting the uh -huh. feel of this, you yeah. know. The, 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 you know, Stravinsky, it was just this beautiful, you know, and they're just rushing through it like 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 you know, I have a union break in five minutes. We got to get through this, you know, and 
So they get done, and I'm like, who the fuck was the wanker who was conducting uh-huh. this? Because uh-huh. Stravinsky's, you know, um, uh, Firebird Suite conducted by Igor Stravinsky. And I went, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I said, he doesn't know how to conduct his own band. You know, this is why I was screaming the car. He doesn't know a damn thing about his own band. It's not, you know, but what I'm, my point being, <laughs> he obviously heard it that way where yeah. other people just like Igor nah you're rushing through that shit lay it back get a pocket for it you know yeah. and so that's so funny it, but it's the same music see yeah. but uh-huh. a completely different interpretation of it so music is totally approximate uh-huh. as far as how you interpret it uh-huh. I have my own musical uh, notation that I do if I'm writing stuff down it looks yep. nothing like music but I know how to read it Let's yeah. just say that just because that's the way somebody chose to put it down, that you don't have a better way or a different system that helps your brain uh, remember yeah. stuff. So again, reading music, yeah, I mean, yeah. So if you're going, if you're going to live in Mexico, it's good to learn the language. If you're going to visit Mexico once in a while, yeah, you can get by with a few words. I hope you've enjoyed part one of the 2023 wrap up of Music Jobs. I'm eager to hear from you. Your questions will be the compass guiding me forward into 2024. Happy holidays, everybody.